I'm Adyan Shenka, a second-year undergraduate student at Stanford University, and this is Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. Infodemic was a virtual conference that took place on August 26th, 2021, in which leaders in public health, medicine, ethics, and social media discussed ways to mitigate the COVID-19 misinformation or disinformation epidemic. This single season podcast will feature all the infodemic sessions as single episodes. The following is one of the conference presentations entitled The Ethical Imperatives for Social Media Companies and Influencers to Act. The panelists were Dr. Travis Ryder, ethicist at the Johns Hopkins Berman Institute of Bioethics, Dr. Nancy Berlinger, ethicist at the Hastings Center, and Dr. Arthur Kaplan, professor of bioethics at NYU Langone Medical Center. Enjoy. Hello. I think we are live. So, so yes, I'm Travis Reeder. I direct the Masters of Bioethics degree program at Johns Hopkins University. I was part of a team very early in the pandemic. It started off with Ann Barnhill, Justin Bernstein, Brian Hutler, and then it kind of slowly grew over the next year or so as we added pieces to the project. Ruth Faden eventually got involved, a name that will be familiar to lots of folks in bioethics. But one of the first things we did and one of the pieces that I took a lead on and wrote for the Hastings Center was to really focus on the way in which values weren't being acknowledged in discussions around COVID-19. And so very early on, as crisis mode settled in, there was a lot of kind of immediate polarization and immediate fighting back and forth and people retreating to camps. And so there would be a kind of sometimes an epidemiology crowd that would be like, this is going to spread, it's going to kill people, whatever it takes, shut it all down, social distance. And then there was a very predictable backlash to that, you know, an autonomy sort of argument. You can't make me shut down my business. You can't make me mask. And that sort of polarization was really problematic. But what it also did, we thought, is that it really did not make clear that there were really substantive, difficult value trade-offs at stake here. And so very often this argument has taken place in the public eye as if there are easy answers And this happens on both sides. It's obviously correct that X. It's obviously correct that we should shut everything down for this many weeks or months. And so one of my areas of interest and expertise is on America's drug overdose epidemic. And I was very concerned from the word go, along with all of my colleagues in this area, that aggressive social distancing measures was going to involve a trade-off with skyrocketing addiction and overdose, because this was a powder keg situation isolate people, increase poverty, increase joblessness, hopelessness, boredom, and drug use will go up. You cut off people, access to recovery networks, that sort of thing. And so what did we see over the course of last year? All these predictions were exactly right. Drug overdoses jumped from 72,000 the previous year to 93,000 in 2020. It was a catastrophic year. None of that is to say that we shouldn't have aggressively social distanced or had periods of shutdown. What it is to say is that there were very real value trade-offs that we pretended didn't exist. And so much of the conversation, especially in social media, especially in these kind of 
gotcha forums where there are trolls involved and people acting in bad faith retreat to really bad methodology and having meaningful conversation. So that's one of the places that I think could be really helpful for us to think about as the way in which a moral framework that wasn't originally thinking about social media. We were actually talking to governors. We were saying, you know, hey, governors, you have to make statewide decisions. You need to be super transparent about value trade-offs and not pretend like there aren't costs, whichever way you land. But the same rules are going to apply to social media squared or to the 10th power or something like that. So I'll stop there, but that might be fodder down the road. Thank you, Travis. Yeah, I remember back in the spring of last year when you know, I was working on one ethical framework focusing on frontline workers and healthcare institutions. And then Travis and his colleagues came out. You were almost like making a map for a place we didn't even know we were going to yet, but you were just sort of putting it out there. And I thought that was really, really helpful, even if we didn't even know what we were looking at. One of the questions and have been a through line for this whole meeting is starts from the idea that disinformation is a problem. An infodemic is a problem. And I know that you very frequently engage with traditional and social media. We were talking a little bit about before the conference to say, to what extent do we know that social media creates antisocial behavior, behavior that goes against how one would hope one would behave in a pandemic, or how does it it worsen it or, you know, leads, leads to motivated reasoning. What are your thoughts? Yeah, thanks, Nancy. So I'm Mark Kaplan. I'm at the NYU Division of Medical Ethics, where I've been for uh, nine years, not far from the Hastings Center, on the <laughs> road a bit. I have been very actively engaged in a couple of topics pre-COVID. One was we've had a vaccine and ethics and policy project for eight years. We were looking at vaccine issues of hesitancy and resistance and misinformation around childhood vaccinations, many, many other vaccinations, hesitancy in Europe, hesitancy in Japan, which has had horrible vaccine hesitancy for decades. Today, by the way, still post-Olympics, vaccinated 38%, trailing many, many countries developed uh, wealthy countries. And we had a project also on pre-approval access to unapproved drugs and vaccines, where we were looking at what do you do in distributing a drug or a vaccine before the FDA gives authorization for it. So in one sense, we were way into topics that were on COVID or COVID. In another sense, we've had to recalibrate some of the things we thought we believed about vaccination and about pre-approval access, watching what's been happening in response to COVID. But to get over to Nancy's question, I'd say a couple of things. First, I'm very active on social media. I have a Twitter account. I use it a lot. I have a lot of followers. I'm not particularly active on Instagram and TikTok because I'm out of time. A little bit active on Facebook, but that's really where I go as an old person to trace my friends' kids and to see what's going on with former students of mine. I don't really use it as a debate platform or a place to talk. Occasionally, I'll post something about vaccines and what I consider to be sound information about vaccines, but it's not a debate forum. Twitter, probably the social media site where I go where the most fighting occurs. I also do a lot of stuff, just so you know, in the mainstream media. I have regular radio shows on WGBH in Boston, WOR in New York, KGO in San Francisco. I do regular weekly TV things for WebMD Medscape. And then I just do a lot of media things when asked. 
Oh, and I have a CNN connection too. So I have a mainstream media view. I have a view on the social media. I'm going to say three things. One, is there a lot of misinformation on social media? As we all know, yes. But there's a lot of misinformation about everything on social media. It's a uh, hotbed of opinions, theories, biases, and so on. That's the nature of the medium. It's as if all the mainstream media took all the tabloid newspapers, all the stuff that you see at the supermarket checkout, those tabloids, threw them all together, and it became Twitter, where everything goes and lots of messages fly. Second, do I really think it's a place where debates go on? A little bit, but not much. More or less, it's assertions. More or less, it's people sort of posting ammo for their particular point of view. Don't really see long backs and forths, discussion, dialogue, and debate. A little bit. Conversations go on a little bit. But for the most part, people tend to really block the hostile. Uh, There's a little bit, I think, as there is in the mainstream media, sort of talking to your friends and your buddies. So does vaccine hesitancy and some of the COVID issues about masking and so on, is it fueled by misinformation? I'm going to say, as Travis started to, a bit, but I also believe it's a values difference. I'm not sure it's just a fact difference. I think people go out and hunt facts to support their values. So do you have to read Twitter to believe that you don't want to be told to wear a mask? No. Do people look for things like masks will poison me or my kids, or they don't work, or uh, they're being sold to us because they're made by companies that want to sell them to us? I think what the media does as much as it does trigger hesitancy, it reinforces value positions that people bring to Twitter. So in that sense, most, I would argue, the best way to manage social media isn't just to try and clean it up so that the facts are accurate. You do have to realize you're in a values fight, and that's where the debate is. So what do people like us do? And, you know, I mean, we, you know, we, we spend so much of our time talking about frameworks as though there's a place where you all come together. You know, it's all metaphor. And they, the idea that if we just have the right framework, we can get right thinking people together. Well, two of us live in blue New York state. We can see the fight that's going to be going on over the next few days and weeks over vaccine mandates. I mean, in, in healthcare, in schools, and you can see that it's tied to political fortunes. Uh, we've had a governor resign recently. It's tied to the start of the school date, the fact of, of that's where the anxieties are moving now, and the fervent desire not to send over a million children back home again. I know, you know, even if you're thinking about parents' forums or how people share information quickly. I'm still trying to figure out how we have these conversations. I completely agree that there there isn't this one forum where we all gather and we can look back and say, well, Walter Cronkite, well, that was a long, long time ago, long time ago. I mean, I'll just give a couple of examples from me, you know, in my public facing role. In the past week, I've spoken to three outlets about the same case, which is, should I lie about my 11 year old? Should I fudge? And I heard about this from USA Today, very mainstream paper, uh, from NPR, you know, more liberal leaning, and from an outlet that is for parents and children. So very, very child oriented. And it was interesting to hear that in each case, the reporters were saying, you know, 
almost like I'm really concerned because I've been talking with parents and they're giving me very detailed descriptions of how they are going about this falsification. They are talking about how they're going to lie about their child's birth date, which date they're going to choose, how they're going to fix it later, what they're going to tell the child to say, all of these things as though this is what must be done. And it's almost like, I'm really hoping that you won't say, well, gotcha, I think they're mm, being wrong, but you're going to tell me some other reason why, why this is a problem. Fortunately, I have an 11-year-old niece, so I'm able to talk to my sister and just say, how does this even sound to you? And some of it is very psychological. It's just like, I can't even imagine lying that much, let alone telling my child to lie. Who, who would, my truth teller niece would tell me, I'm, that's not my birthday, you know? And, you know, she doesn't like it when you, when you do things like that. So some of it isn't just ethics. It's just down to the, the con, well, a big word we use in ethics is context. What is the context of what you're asking someone to do? So I'm never using principles talk in this. I'm saying things like, if you're used to talking to your pediatrician about your child's health, talk to your pediatrician before you lie to your pharmacist, you know, before you start an untrustworthy relationship. And if you're ducking a conversation with someone you normally trust, that's the thing. That's the thing you should be thinking about ethically. But I have found there's no one framework for doing this. I mean, I can go back to Cicela Box work from the 70s and 80s on lying and deceit and corruption and all of those things. But that gets me only so far when I'm talking about people who are saying, but my child, but my child. So let me take a stab and then I'll let Travis add on if he wishes. I'm backing up not to your example, which I've heard about as well, about pushing the margins to get your kid vaccinated by some. My dog is protesting. But I think it's more, uh, how do you use the social media to affect change? So I asserted social media is not a debate forum. It's a place where people express strong views that they may have about a variety of COVID topics, whether it's rationing, ICU access, penalizing people who don't vaccinate, mandates, passports, whatever it is. So what I do, this is just speaking for me, is I surf around in Twitter and I see what people are concerned about, objecting to, or worried about. And then I may decide to express an opinion about it in an op-ed or maybe on a post. What I'm trying to do there is garner attention to the point of view that I believe is right. And many mainstream media are surfing there and watching for that. So a common flow for me, in my experience, is people put their views up on social media. You watch the social media. You respond to something you agree with or don't agree with or you think is being missed. Mainstream media types come along and fuel attention to what I've said, maybe mm -hmm. more acceptable in an op-ed or opinion piece or Hastings-centered blog or whatever it might be. And then you can attract the attention of different audiences. And here's what I mean. Sometimes politicians will pay attention to the mainstream media because they live and die through publicity. But you also may attract attention, and this has happened to me in the past year, of employers. So I'm trying to get employers to do things like put in mandates or try to put in education programs for their workers. And they see it in the mainstream media. And all of a sudden, they're policy leaders. It's not just the governor of Connecticut or the legislature of New York or the governor of Maryland, all of a sudden you see there are other actors. Similarly, professional societies may step in and have something to say. AMA endorsed mandates this week. 
We've seen petitions organized to get many organizations to try and require healthcare workers to get mandatory vaccination. And I don't mean to obsess just on vaccines, they're just examples. But I want you to pay attention, if you will, to what I think is one path. See what's floating around on the social media. Take a position relative to that. It's wrong, it's right, reinforce it. See if it drives more attention into the mainstream media and then see how it plays out with various actors who can shape policy. But it isn't just trying to talk to government. It can be, but I think for my money in this pandemic, major players turn out to be employers. Travis, I wonder if if you've had experience with that in your research and in your various public-facing roles at looking at drug policy, at the idea of using social media. I think that's really interesting, you know, as a way to take the temperature of what people are worried or concerned about. And then kind of nudging that along and saying, okay, here's a topic that a lot of people are interested in, including people who aren't on Twitter. Uh, well, I don't think I'm that sophisticated at serving the sites as art is. But part of my answer to your initial question, kind of, you know, what do we do in this situation right. where it's it's not just about correcting facts? I've started to think of a job that needs to be occupied is something called an ethics communicator, And so all during this conference, there's been an extolling of science communication. And I join in with the extolling. Science communication is like the Lord's work, good translational work that society needs. But we need that same good translational work in ethics. And so we need the sort of thing that Art was describing. Sometimes it happens in op-eds. Sometimes it happens in social media. But what I think this is constituted by is the sort of careful exploration of these underlying values that often get overlooked, right? So one of the things that happens is we all get out over our skis if we're asked to comment on something that is massively multidisciplinary as a problem, right? And so if you ask a virologist what to do about school closings, they have a really important perspective. They know some relevant science. They are not policymakers unless they happen to do that as a side job, right? They're not on school boards. They're maybe not trained as an ethicist or a health policy person to think about these underlying value trade-offs, right? And so the sorts of discussions that we need to be having on social media in the more mainstream media with one another societally have to involve a lot of different perspectives. And every time it comes to making decisions that affect thousands or millions of people that involve values trade-offs, We can't pretend like these are just discussions of the science. So science communicators, uh, I've been amazed listening to some of the physicians and scientists on the calls today who are able to describe what they do beautifully and eloquently, and I'm riveted by them. But we have to do the same thing with ethics because when they're going viral on TikTok, making the virology understandable, we also need to be making the trade-offs understandable to the same community who are going to have to be weighing these decisions out so that when they give feedback to their school boards, they're actually thinking about how to make this decision rigorously in a sophisticated way that recognizes the nuance. I'm sure we can all think of certain scientists, epidemiologists, pediatricians who have put themselves into roles of interpreters for parents, Emily Oster at Brown and various others. She's just one who comes to mind. And yet you can always find someone who's going to agree with what you already think you want to do for your child. If you want, if you think I have to keep my child out of school, you're going to find someone who's saying, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm holding back. If you say to somebody, go ahead, go ahead. You're going to find somebody who's going to endorse that as well. 
And in some cases, some of these sort of scientist communicators have then copped to the fact they said, yeah, my kid does go to a private school. And I wasn't thinking about the problems of large public school systems and having to make a decision for 1.1 million children. Like, like in my city, I was thinking about, you know, my, my kids with classes with 16 kids in them. So I, I don't even know how you would even just at this school year time, how you would help parents or school officials or others who haven't already decided on one position or another to decide to whom to listen. I was going to say, I agree with Travis about the need for multiple disciplinary perspectives. You know, I live in Connecticut, even though I work in New York. And last week, I assembled with a group of people here, a open podcast, Back to School Connecticut. And I moderated it. And I picked myself to moderate it, partly because I don't have any kids they're too old going back to school, but partly because I thought I could play a little bit of that interdisciplinary role and ask questions that maybe people were a little embarrassed to ask or something like that. So we had five panelists. We had a person who uh, is the coach, I guess, for the orchestra in the town of Ridgefield, where I live in the high school. We had superintendent of school, school nurse. We had a big cross-section of people, and not everybody was pro-mask or back to school or whatever. And off we went and we took the questions. And I think bioethics or ethics in that way made a real contribution. Had a forum, asked what you want, didn't really have a big agenda. Anybody who got rude, we kind of didn't let them ask a question. We didn't throw them out. We didn't have to. It wasn't a physical thing, but I think it went really well. And I don't think we do enough of that. We tend to talk to each other in the academy or maybe to mainstream media outlets that we love and respect, but bringing these matters out into the community, trying to facilitate attention to the value side of the question. Again, Travis is right. It's not like there's one answer for every kid and it's clear and there's no downside. Everything has some costs and not every kid is the same. And it's not the same when you're 14 as when you're four and, you know, a lot of variability there. But I think bioethics, our field, has a history or a legacy of trying very hard over the years, Travis, you won't remember this, but Nancy might, to be accepted by the academy, to try and be professional, to try and publish in the right journals, to try and get slots that would let you get academic positions. But the other side of bioethics is kind of an activist one in the community. I don't think we do so well. You know, I don't have children. And so I have to use other parents as proxies. And so whenever I get a question about that, it isn't like answering a question about ICU ethics or something like that. It's where you can go to talk to some doctors and nurses and, and get a sense. You really do have to say to somebody who would be making that decision on behalf of another person who cannot make that decision for themselves. What does this even feel like to you right now? What does it look like to you right now? Where are your sources of information? And no two parents will, even if they might make the same decision and have a child the same age, will describe exactly the same situation. It depends on, are they in Brooklyn or are they in Florida? Or is every child masked or, or is their child the only one who's masked? You know, and or a reporter might say, you know, I was talking to a woman and she has an older child who's been vaccinated. And the reason she fudged the date, the birth date on her younger child was because she's a single parent and she does not have the time, the bandwidth to deal with a sick child. So she just 
cross your fingers. You know, I'm going to split hairs on that. <laughs> it's yeah. just very, really churlish. I do absolutely think we should welcome this. But the idea, I, but I always sort of cringe with, then it's framed as the controversy. I'm always saying, please don't ramp it up. You know, let's, let's say this is a, this is a, some people are experiencing this in their family life, in their town life, in their school life, in things that are going on that are super important to their children. I wish we didn't call things debates or controversies because that may not be how the family is experiencing it. Travis, I know you're a parent. I wonder how this plays out for you. Yeah. So take that, roll it up with your your underlying question, which was kind of like, how do we actually move forward and do any of this value exposure work? So here we go. You heard it here first. Travis Reader's patented first rule of ethics communication, right? Compassionate and thoughtful, respectful engagement, right? I think this is one of the things that social media makes the hardest for the sort of work that we're trying to do with the public that we we all must do with the public right now, which is it doesn't incentivize that. It incentivizes the gotcha. It incentivizes the most entertaining, right? But if you're trying to do this values work and you recognize that if a, if a problem is hard, then there are going to be real trade-offs, right? This is just a basic principle. If there were no real trade-offs, the problem wouldn't be hard unless it's just weakness of will or something. So we got this school example. It's a genuinely hard problem. Do we send kids back to school? For my daughter, it's next week, right? And so there are genuine trade-offs here. My school system is going back. It's not online. There's a good mask mandate. We're going to see how it all goes. These are all bad options because we're in a bad situation, right? And so one of the things that she's going to do is she's going to be at a much heightened risk of contracting the Delta variant and spreading it to her family. But also she's not going to continue to miss. She's only had one semester of school ever and she's in second grade, right? And so these kids have missed out on something genuinely valuable. So we recognize all these values at stake and we have to take them seriously. And so I wanna say two things about that. You have to take them seriously. One is that this is actually a moral requirement. So you have to take them seriously because that's the way that you engage with other humans respectfully. And so the sort of like snappy shutdown of the alternative position is a disrespectful position. Now, no, I'm not talking about engaging with trolls here. I don't have rules for engaging with trolls. But when you're engaging with someone who's genuinely on the opposite side of something as you. So it's, I think, morally wrong not engage with them respectfully to kind of unearth this difference of values and then to see why you're weighting them differently, right? But then I also just think it's pragmatically wrong. You're just way less likely to do any good if you focus on snappy comebacks and entertainment than if you actually do respectful engagement. So I want everybody to try to think of a single instance in which their sworn enemy politically or polar in terms of polarization convinced them of something by shutting them down. That just doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. Table thumping and yelling at people doesn't convince anyone. So it's also pragmatically useful to treat people with respect and, and unearth these values together. So absolutely, I think that what we're going to do with kids in my district next week is really problematic. And I think that choosing to keep them home would have been really problematic. And that's recognizing that we're in a genuine dilemma because there are such severe costs on all sides. That's a, a really good way to put it, to, to just say the stakes are very high and that children themselves cannot really engage in these debates, many of them anyway. You know, so there's that extra sense of having to decide for another. 
we've been asked to return to one of the questions that was posed. And it does touch on what we were talking about at the beginning, the idea of an ethical framework or frameworks. You know, we love that term. Is there a specific ethical framework that supports the need for social media companies to play a more active role in limiting misinformation and disinformation? We'll take that question first. I know what I think, but I'd like to know what Art thinks. Well, look, the companies claim to be carriers. They claim to be disseminators. They don't claim to be news organizations. That's their line of argument. It's like we're a billboard company and you, someone else decides about the content and puts it up there and we carry it. But mm-hmm. I think even billboard companies have standards. They won't put up anything and everything that they might be asked to. I think some people worry that Facebook or Twitter might be too sensorial, too too restrictive on what they will carry. I think they could do better. I think there's a lot of stuff up there that is just flat out misinformation. There were days when I wish they would do something about bleach as an antidote to COVID before people killed themselves. So that seems to me to be something they could step in and say, we're pulling this down and this is false and it's really dangerous. At the other end, though, I don't think they're really going to be in a position to sort of purify the Facebook or the Internet with messages that, you know, the immunology division of NYU would be satisfied with. I don't think they're going there either. So it's noisy. It's ribald. It is better, I think, to remind people that you don't really want to go to get your medical advice just to the internet. It might be a place to raise questions. I I think it's teaching people a little bit how to use it. So partially you can control it. I mean, just flat out dangerous. You know, at this point, ivermectin has poisoned more people than it's cured. So it may be time to pull down some of that stuff or flag it and say, you know, this is really dangerous. Don't use dewormer to get rid of your COVID. But beyond that, I don't think they do it very well. I'm not sure that's their mission, if you will. But I think it is reminding people, what do they got when they're wallowing around out there in the social media side? They got a big cacophony. It's like saying, you know, in the olden days, I'm going down to the local coffee house, and I guess I'll let that guy sitting next to me on the stool tell me what I ought to do about going back to school. Travis, when the question suggests, is there an ethical framework, but it seemed like the right word should be, is there a regulatory framework? This seems to be very slippery. So I don't know how far we get other than, as Art suggested, helping people to be more critical in how they're using something. Yeah. So I do think there are regulatory options. We've seen some of that this past summer. There was a bill put forward to repeal a kind of protection for social media companies. Um, the, the Facebook, Twitter, and Google folks who are on one of the early sessions gave a really nice overview of like what they're actually doing. But I actually don't want to give up on the ethical framework too quickly. Like the regulatory stuff is working its way out. Politicians are really frustrated right now, especially with Facebook and Twitter. We're going to continue to see how that happens. But the reason I flagged Ashley's comment in the chat is because I thought she asked it exactly perfectly. She said, you know, what would ground a responsibility and obligation to the platforms? Uh, what about the influencers and then those who consume information from social media? So this is not, say, an established ethical framework of public health or biomedical ethics. But here's a framework that I've been thinking about a lot lately, because I think COVID-19 has revealed 
how useful it is to recognize the tensions between public health and individual decision making. And that is that we are facing more and more often massive, large scale, catastrophic collective threats that each of us individually contributes to very little, some or infinitesimally, kind of depending on the individual threat. And so then responsibility falls in various different ways. And when people start putting responsibility on actors, there's a lot of moral discomfort about that judgment because it's so confused. So climate change was the paradigm of this big, massive collective threat, lots of unintentional action by seven and a half billion people. And at the end of it, hurricanes and deathly heat waves, et cetera. COVID-19 infectious disease has this same framework. It's modified because individuals can cause harm. You go maskless, unvaccinated, cough all over people. You could in fact be the direct vector that kills somebody. But by and large, the reason infectious disease is so hard is because we have to ask people to do stuff out of solidarity, to be part of the solution. What was the initial rallying cry? It was flatten the curve, right? Do your part to flatten the curve. And so I think if you know this conference was premised on the infodemic as kind of taking very seriously misinformation as an analogy with an epidemic. And you can see in this question that this distinction between individuals, individuals with power and the collective is really coming out when you're facing this big collective threat, which is disinformation that can cause a huge amount of harm, right? So most of us can't change it. My piddly 3,000 followers or whatever, they're awesome, not piddly, but the piddly number of 3,000 followers is not going to change the direction of the infodemic. But I can like do my part. I can participate with solidarity in a kind of greater movement. There's a question about how, how much responsibility I have to actively combat misinformation. Like I see this argument play out. Like, must you use Facebook as an environment where you call out your uncle? Right. So that is a very real question. But when you ask, like, what's your job? One of the things that you often hear is, well, that's letting Facebook and Google and Twitter off the hook because they're the ones that can actually fix this, right? So they're the ones that actually set the stage, they play, set the game up at the beginning, and they can actually do it. And so collective action problems call for policy. They call for collective solutions by people who are actually in a position of power, which is why we're asking them to do that. Influencers live in the middle, because if you have two and a half million followers on Twitter, you are not me, right? You are not just another pawn in this massive network of misinformation. Now you can actually do something. And that's why it's really important that Arnold Schwarzenegger is going on and talking to his followers about this stuff, right? So that was really long. I hope that was like at least a little bit addressing Ashley's question. I'm done. There was one question there that I just want to mention very quickly. Someone had said, is there a historical example of someone drawing attention to these problems? And the first thing I could think of was the speech that FCC chairman Newt Minow gave 60 years ago, where he condemned television as a vast wasteland. Now, that was the golden years of Walter Cronkite. But at the time, someone who was very powerful as a regulator was looking very critically at it. And so this may be another one of those moments. I don't know how we get, we use the incredibly vast and fragmented media that we have now to think about collective action problems like climate change, let alone COVID. Even if we cleaned up the social media, even if it was by some somebody's standard more factual, would that actually bring to an end debates about what to do about COVID? I doubt it very much. Mm. So I, it's easy to believe that, 
we could only get the facts right and only get them disseminated properly, then we would have a kumbaya moment and reach consensus on many policy questions. I don't think that's the way it works. I think the way it works is you move with your values, you look for information that backs it up, you can clean up some of that, but that doesn't mean you won't find other things. The number of people who told me they weren't going to vaccinate because vaccines were emergency use authorized, the day it got licensed, I came back and said, now? And they said, well, you know, they're not safe. I mean, they were looking for reasons to justify the fact they don't want to vaccinate. It wasn't like they were going to be moved by the facts over to a more modified position. So I don't want to say the facts don't count. I don't mean that. But let's not overemphasize where we are on the not paying attention to the values. Thanks for listening to the session of Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. We invite you to listen to the other important discussions and presentations that occurred at the conference, each available as individual episodes of this podcast. All 10 sessions are archived together. Just search Infodemic on the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, alium.com, that's A-L-I-E-M.com, or to summer 2021, on our website, stanfordinfodemic.org. A video recording of the entire conference is available on the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us.